0: Happening now, we'd like to welcome our visitors, guests, and viewers, and listeners from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, Episode 84, for January the 31st, 2018. My name is Wes Fryer, coming to you from my dining room in Oklahoma City, where I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School, and reading more ed tech news and technology news than ever, thanks to this weekly opportunity to gather around the virtual fireplace, as it were, with my friend Jason Neifer. Jason, is the the real fireplace uh, burning tonight in Missoula, and how are things up north?
1: Uh, Good evening, Wes. Um, Sadly, no, and I actually have a a sad reason for that. Uh, Missoula County, which is in that valley, it um, has a constant burn ban. So when we lived in Helena, which is about a uh, hundred miles uh, east of Missoula, uh, we we used to love to have we had a house with a wood burning uh, insert in a fireplace, and oh, we loved it so much. I love fire heat so much. And sadly, even though Missoula winters can get quite chilly, uh, we were not able we're not able to put in a fireplace here, but. The weather has been decent here, uh, uh, mid 40s a couple days last week. So things are starting to melt, and then at nighttime turn into delightful ice rinks. So we're excited to have the Montana winter continue here. Although I did notice today on my way home that uh, we're starting to notice the longer days, which thank goodness. I winter I don't mind the you know seven hours of sunlight. <laughs> That's a little tougher for me. So um, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana. I'm serving as adjunct faculty at the University of Montana this spring, uh, teaching a little bit of ed tech. And I am a doctoral candidate. And um, uh, reiterated with my my chair today that we're going to try to defend in about eight weeks or so. And um, it's still an aggressive timeline, but it gives us a little bit of flexible room so I could be done by graduation in May. And I'm excited. I am uh, getting a doctorate in teaching and learning with a concentration in Distance learning, um, educational technology and digital learning. So very excited, um, to work on that. So Wes, what is this whole podcast thing about? This is about
0: cats, weather and the blood moon of the previous night. No, it's about uh, you may want to the cat is making a bit a bit of noise so you may yeah. want to relocate her. Uh no, we are about talking each week about headlines that have uh, happened in the technology world and hopefully applying an educational lens to analyze those and specifically think about how those might apply to educators, teachers, educational organizations And that sort. So we want to give a shout out to our live viewers. I see we've got a couple folks joining us. Please do let us know, uh, if you're willing, who you are, where you're, where you're at in the chat room. Uh, we want to, uh, definitely give voice any questions or perspectives that you might have and got some pretty interesting directions to, uh, go here. And we would encourage everyone, if you have not already to go to our links on edtechsr.com slash links where you'll find the Google doc that will have typically more things than we will have time to discuss in the 60 or so minutes that we will take. And I would also suggest Jason, I didn't do this this week, but maybe in the future, I really want to keep learning about Google home and, you know, new things. So that'd be kind of a cool thing, like something different that you can do with your, your virtual assistant. Sure. Um, so I need to, I'm going to try to brush up on my to doist skills to doist is one of the past, the uh, productivity apps that works with the Google home and, I'm on a constant quest to try and increase the uh, the uh, organization and productivity of my life, so working to working to do that. Do you have a, an article you would like to jump to first today, sir?
1: Sure. Well, I would say that maybe the, the topic that struck the most interest to me in the last seven days is related to Facebook announcing that – um, it is starting to notice a decrease in engagement amongst its users. and there have been a number of articles on this in the past 72 hours or so. but the one or the ones that caught my eye first and foremost uh, this morning, um, the verge reported that Facebook usage is falling based on the tinker with the news feed. And what's really interesting about that to me, and they do uh, produce some statistics related to this, but basically the active daily users, um, uh, being added to the service was down pretty substantially in December of 17, um, even though the active uh, daily users is still 1.4 billion. The increase of that number is going down. And Facebook is also reporting that there's less engagement, um, and the number they're citing is roughly 50 million hours every day is the number they've decreased in usage in the last 30 days. And they're attributing this to tweaks they're making to the uh, newsfeed. And, and one source is, uh, goes as far to boldly say that Facebook is reducing time to push their well-being. That's how Ten- TechCrunch described the same news this morning. Um, and I-, I think this is an interesting thing. And the way that I've started thinking about this is that this is not really Facebook fixing anything. I think it's starting to right-size itself. And one of the things that um, is coming to light, and we have some other articles we may get into tonight about how technology is becoming weaponized. I think the fact that Facebook has face criticism and that they are being associated with the kinds of things that are addicting about technology and mobile fo- phones and smartphones, the fact that Facebook is responding to this and it's meaning a decrease in the amount of engagement is probably actually the best case scenario for Facebook. They're, they're making tons of money hand over fist. I can tell you that I help run some uh, a government-based and nonprofit organizations' Facebook pages, and it's suddenly becoming a little harder to get things in front of our Users' eyes, but I don't think that's in essence a terrible thing. Like if Facebook was intended to be a, um, a a social network where people are engaging with really one another on a an individual or personal basis, that that phenomenon, um, if people are engaging less on that, it also means they're looking at you know less trash information, less low value information, less you know quote unquote fake news. That I think is is a positive thing. So I guess I'd start with Wes. Are you noticing any decrease in your interest at in checking out Facebook?
0: No. The last couple of weeks, we've actually Charlie's um, father passed away, and so we've uh, had a lot of personal, you know, interactions. I, I will say it's it's a it's been a fantastic thing. Like there are far more yeah. folks who were able to be aware of of his passing um he was from Dalhart Texas and i went to with our family to a uh, a really awesome event that happens there uh every summer uh called the XIT rodeo uh, uh yeah XIT rodeo and it and it happened it started actually during the the dust bowl times when they needed something to look forward to and so it was free barbecue and anyway i made a video years ago uh somebody found it they suggested i share it and so i happened to be part of that group And so I was able to, you know, share his obituary and and some things about it. And, you know, we got people who were in the third grade with him who, you know, spent their whole school careers playing in the band and just any anyway, some really neat interactions. So I have not had any any negatives as far as Facebook goes. But I think that is a good segue to a great article you put in. And I was able to read before the show. And this is from Recode today on January the 31st. Tech is now a weapon for propaganda, and the problem is way bigger than Russia, and that article references a longer paper, which I also uh, put in the links, and I'll add to the show notes, and is on my to-do list for reading now. And it's a paper uh, in uh, New America from January 23rd, and it's titled Digital Deceit, the Technologies Behind Prison Propaganda, Precision, sorry, Precision Propaganda on the Internet. And so what the authors are saying here is that, you know, Russia, you know, don't give them too much credit for just this amazing hack. What they really did was just leverage the tools available to all advertisers. And we sort of have a perfect storm right now with, with social media, especially with respect to Facebook, but other platforms as well, where advertisers can micro target, you know, audiences and they can share things that are not accessible to the, to the public widely. Fake news can be shared you know propaganda uh, it 's really a dream for anyone who 's wanting to wage information warfare against an open society or a republican um, democracy such such as we have and so the authors of this piece are really encouraging action and saying this is this is really just the tip of the iceberg, and so I think this is a hugely important issue for us to yeah. be talking about. In school, in social studies, in the concept of traditional citizenship as well as digital citizenship, digital literacy um, and I think that you know we we've talked on the show months ago, and shout out to both uh, Marta down in Honduras and Peggy George down in Arizona. you know they've been with us as hope as many of you may have as well talking about um you know some of these darker conspiracies about, uh, and you're going to have to help me, Jason, because now I'm drawing a blank. Um, the companies that were alleged that were hired by the Trump campaign, as well as the Brexit campaign um, to
1: yeah, one know, do that... this
0: kind of market targeting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I'm just going to we'll
0: have to go back on the show notes. We'll go back in the show notes and take a look at that. Um, but anyway, I, I, I think that, This just shows how, well, I've been, I've watched, rewatched a video. I'll drop this one in the show notes too. One of my favorite books, uh, from 2008, Clay Shirky. Here comes everybody. And I don't actually like how YouTube on the on the Apple TV shows your watch later list in flipped order. So I've got some – I've got really old stuff, right, that always shows up on my homepage. I need to clear it out. But anyway, it just happened that I was looking at that, and I thought, oh, I'm going to watch this. And, you know, Shirky makes this point as, as clear or clearer than anyone – that the internet is a fundamental change in the way that society operates. It's not, you know, a linear change. It's a, it's a tremendous change. We might talk about the Sundar Pichai um, discussion at uh, Davos, you know, saying that AI is, is a bigger deal than electricity and fire in terms of changing society. But this is a great video to watch if you're not familiar with, with Shirky's work. And Part of what he's saying, and maybe this was prescient back in 2008, you know, is that the world will not be the same. And, and the, the key point he makes is that forming groups has gotten way easier. And so this is manifesting itself election wise into the way that information can be manipulated and and changed and so to your point Jason about you know nonprofits having a little more trouble getting into the news feed the thing is facebook may want to reduce the amount of just link sharing that happens but i have heard nothing about them changing their their advertising algorithm or the ability for folks to pay to play. And so what this article in this piece is saying is that Facebook and these other tech companies are going to have to find ways to identify bad actors. And that's something which we kind of think they're trying to not do, like whitelist real news sites and blacklist fake news sites. But in terms of advertising, you know, whose money are you going to take, and are you going to have boundaries and limits to the kinds of things that you, you know, are allowing people to to pay and do? So, uh, what what was your take on that article?
1: Well, uh, the thing I keep re- being reminded of is that that I think a lot of this is a manifestation of kind of the information overload that our our culture has uh, perpetuated with technology. And I was actually speaking about this issue in regards to digital distraction today to my uh, ed tech students at the University of Montana. And I reminded them of an important take on this from 1989, Information uh, Anxiety by Richard Saul Werman is a excellent book that tries to uh, kind of warn us about the overwhelming amount of information. And of course, let's remember in 1989, the high tech was the Macintosh Portable, which was a 12 pound laptop that had the speed today of, of your average Internet of Things light bulb, right? So there's a, uh, uh, something that, that he talked about and he said that information anxiety happens when information doesn't come along with enough contextual information to tell you what the information is or what it means, right? and that's kind of i think facebook's problem right like the facebook and the social media tools that are being taken advantage of uh in a weaponized way as that article suggests one of the things that um, i think is part of that problem is that you know you can be shared a bunch of memes that suggest something suggest a view suggest a a a political point of view but those aren't really in context of anything right if the meme is just trump bad hillary good or or um uh uh, uh, Trump good, Hillary bad, those memes aren't, don't, don't really provide much context, right? Or if they go into the most surface of arguments about how Trump is, is a heartless, uh, fascist bastard and, and, and Hillary Clinton is an abject socialist, uh, uh, you know, that, that doesn't help anything, right? That that's not an argument, that's not proof, that's not evidence, that's not analysis, that is a meme, right? And so if for us, um, you know, we, can 't uh, if we 're relying on sources of information that really just scratch at the surface of of the most basic of of emotional means, then you know that that 's part of the why we have problems now, and I think that that 's the situation we end up in now with social media being so prevalent in our lives. And as we've talked about a couple of times in the past, we've referred to this article when it first came out about a year ago that the former Google engineer that said that our technology is being designed with addictive properties put directly into it, right? I mean, it's the same stuff that goes into Vegas gambling machines. If that's true, but what's being delivered to us as part of that addiction is this kind of extraordinary amount of, of mis- or disinformation, then you know that I understand why this has become such a problem.
0: Absolutely. You can go on back to episode 12 on June 1st, 2016 to, to hear that uh, ex Googler slams designers for making apps addictive like slot machines. And his name is Tristan Harris. In fact, I would say, you know, his name, that article, and then that idea is, is a key one for, you know, digital citizenship, thinking about wellness and resiliency and, you know, being intentional with our, with our digital devices. I'd like to segue into this, uh, another article that we've got under think pieces here at the top. And this is also, this is from the World Economic Forum on January 26th. And it's called six quotes from Davos on the future of education. And so this really brings the conversation about fake news and news feeds and algorithms into some pretty sharp focus in terms of education and why it's so important. And so in the middle of the article, um, we've got some quotations from Manouche, uh, Shaftik, who is director.
1: Roading. Oh,
0: well, it, it, I oh was going to say, yeah, you'd think it was. That's the, That was the first Manouche and only Manouche I knew before this, but this is another Manouche. She's the director of the London School of Economics. And so she was in a session at Davos on saving economic globalization from itself. And so the article says overhauling our education system will be essential to fixing the fractures in our societies and avoiding a tilt toward populism. Quote, it's no accident that the people who voted for populist parties around the world are people with by and large low levels of education. It's not because they're stupid. It's because they're smart. They have figured out this system will not be in their favor. And so it goes on to talk about STEM skills, you know, breaking cultural silos and it doesn't reference project zero by Google, but you know, that's, that's again, something we all need to be familiar with. And it's this study internally with Google where they found, you know, the STEM skills are not the most important skills in terms of those who thrive and do well in the Google culture. When we, it's about soft skills. It's about collaboration. It's about communication, being able to listen, you know, being able to work with others. And so like liberal arts education and Folks who maybe are music majors or art majors or have these different perspectives to bring to the table and can work with others can really thrive in this new era and new age. So I think these are really, really important messages, and especially as we think about high-stakes testing and how ridiculously out of balance you know we've become in in many schools today in the United States and elsewhere, and we've really let non-educators write the script, literally, for what we need to do in the classroom all of this stuff is really important because this this is a rapidly advancing world the the world of automation in fact the article <laughs> in terms of automation you know says that According to McKinsey Global Institute, robots could replace 800 million jobs by 2030, while the World Economic Forum suggests a, still, a skills revolution could open up a raft of new opportunities. You know, we've got to be not just talking about technology and how we're going to be using apps and, and Chromebooks, et cetera, et cetera, but how are we fundamentally changing the ways in which we are moving from a fact recall, traditional delivery approach of education to a real skills approach where students are, are learning skills, they're using them in authentic ways. They're using digital tools and accessing digital resources, just like we do in the real world, but they're learning to solve problems. They're learning to collaborate. They're learning to communicate. You know, they're learning to work with data and they're, they're using algorithms. You know, uh, AI is going to be the, this is my quote of, this, of the session. AI will be the calculator of the next generation. You know, we're just like we've got calculators in our in our smartphones now. Versus just a, you know, it's going to be common. We're going to have access to to those things, especially as we'll you know talk a little bit about later. Sundar Pichai will, you know, and and uh, Elon Musk and others are going to hopefully help us stop the militarization of AI and you know promote openness. So, anything uh, there, Jason, in terms of of uh, connections for you thinking about. You know, you guys are part of the learning revolution at the at the Digital Academy. Do you feel like you're on the forefront of that for Montana educators? I'm not being, you know, over the top uh,
1: exaggerating. Yeah. I really think uh, you well, are. I mean, I would say that 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 one of the things that we tend to expose is that that uh, I think the distance learning and there's so many strong opinions about this that it's it, it the discussion becomes uh, quite or or maybe even too emotional quite quickly. But we tend to expose. I think some 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 internal debates in schools that we really have nothing to do with, right, like if a bunch of kids want to take a class with us as opposed to the face to face classroom teacher in in a a school department whatever. You know that that's really not us, right? Like that that's an internal conversation that needs to occur. But where I think that I keep thinking about, like when when they mention AI taking away 800 million jobs, we talk a lot about this here, and I I don't honestly think that that's a, a that that's naysaying, right? That that's that's going to happen, right? There's a lot of evidence that is in the the verge of happening. But in my mind, like I think that does call into the question sometimes our over-hand-wringing focus on making sure kids are future-ready. Because I don't really think that we know what future-ready looks like right now. Instead, we should be focusing on making or creating smart, uh, 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 apt, flexible, um, well-rounded students that can go out in the world and be flexible enough to deal with whatever future-ready really means, right? It's one of the reasons why I think that uh, you know the uh, the people that talk about the the 21st century learning movement, the the four Cs folks, right? Like, yeah, that's all true, but that's all stuff that really good teachers were teaching 50 years ago, as much as they are teaching in in modern day classrooms, right? The ability to collaborate, the ability to communicate, the ability to solve problems. Um, the ability to to look at changing systems, architectures, ecosystems, and being able to adapt to that is really in my mind what 's going to make the future uh, palatable for folks when a lot of jobs that I think we rely on maybe overly now or sometimes create artificial structures to keep those jobs in place like those are are, are going to need to to adapt and change to do that and the only way we can do that now is making sure that our students are you know, are, are smart, right? They're savvy. They're, you know, we're not well, teaching them word. We're teaching them instead that they need to write and communicate.
0: And we're resilient to face change. Uh, I think Jason, your stream may be a little bit uh, having a little few bandwidth issues. I think Peggy's seen a seen a little bit, and I am as well. It's not okay. terrible, but just a, f- a couple breakups. Um, you know, change. There, there was, and I don't know whether this was on. I think this was an NPR segment that I was what was watching or listening to. You know talking about um, coal workers you know in pennsylvania and and job retraining efforts and folks that don 't want to retrain like they right. want the coal the mines to reopen and they 'd like to go back to their other jobs and so you know i, I don 't know if this is something how how much of this is part of soft skills I definitely know we 're thinking about it i 'm thinking about it at school a lot. We have two of our four. Um, principals, we call them division directors because we're in four different divisions at school. But, but, uh, you know, one, uh, two of them are retiring and, and we've got new folks coming in. Uh, one is an interim and then the other one was, was we had a year long search, um, to find her and, and to bring her in. And so, you know, you hear about what, who moved my cheese. That's a whole book and I think, you know, thing you do at, in, in corporate, you know, um, professional development and probably in schools too, you know, saying, we need to be able to um, be resilient with change and be flexible. It's hugely important, um, you know, because we're we're going to need to, to retrain and, and we need our students to be willing and able to do that, too. So anyway, I think that's a that's a part of it as well, along with the four C's or five C's or or whatever you want to call those. All right. Well, I would love to talk a little bit about something that may sound really boring, but at least um I, I don't know how much this is on people's radar screen. But if you're in Europe, the GDPR is a big issue and this and we're not going to go total legal on you here uh and not hopefully not bore everybody and, and cause them to drop the podcast. But this is important stuff for education and for privacy and it actually connects to fake news and that kind of stuff, too, because we are seeing um, folks in the U.S. Congress and just America in general waking up to, you know, these issues really highlighted the most by the 2016 presidential election that, hey, what's going on with data privacy? What's going on with with our data and the way it's being utilized? What are these tech companies up to? Do we need some regulation? And so Europe is the one um, for better or worse. I hope for better that is uh, pushing the envelope here with what's being called the GDPR, and it's the General Data Protection Regulation. And this is a new regulation that was adopted in April of 2016, and it's beca- it's going to be enforceable uh, this year on the um, 25th of May, 2018. And so it doesn't require any of the nations of the EU to pass enabling legislation. It's just directly binding. And basically what I put into the show notes is that the English Wikipedia article, which as is often the case provides a nice summary that you can, uh, you know, take a look at first um, the official GDPR portal. And then um, actually the last link there is an Educause review article uh, back in August 28th of 2017, and it's called the General Data Protection Regulation explained. Where here in the United States, we've got more constituent-focused privacy rules. Think um, uh, FERPA and COPA, uh, protecting you know education data that that is in schools. FERPA thinking about um, uh, medical and and things that are in in that kind of a context. The GDPR is just more general. And so I've heard about this actually because of the Seesaw Facebook group and my wife being on that and asking about it because some different folks in Europe have said, hey, are we going to be able to use Seesaw? You know, where is the data stored? How is it handled? There's something called the Privacy Shield Framework that the United States and Switzerland have both adopted. And Seesaw has a blog post from December 13th, 2017, is Seesaw GDPR compliant, where they're talking about how they are utilizing the Privacy Shield Framework. and. It's it's um, a, a way, I guess, of of identifying the ways in which you are complying. And then there's a way that that certification happens. So, uh, Jason, I know that you're not subject to the GDPR, you know, being up in Missoula. Um, how do privacy laws and those kinds of things play into tools that your your instructors use or training that you do for instructors? Is there is, is privacy and, and and data protection you know for student data something that plays into to what you're doing on if not a, a weekly basis on on a semester annual basis as you have new instructors coming online and getting up to speed on things
1: sure I, I think the way we've been approaching this and I would say that this has been both an attitude shift on me personally and I think obviously as uh, uh, one of the minders of my program we need to be extra conscious of this but um, I, you know, if you had asked me in 2010, I would have told you that our, um, you know, our teachers are a group of savvy uh, uh, teachers that know tech that are going to use a variety of wonderful Web 2.0 tools to help students create, you know, wonderful, publishable things, yada, yada, yada. And what we learned is that the the full learning process for content that's that's that standards based in a course, usually is a little more mundane than that, right? It requires a little more uh, a kind of direct interaction with the content as opposed to the creation piece. And I know that both you and I, Wes, tend to preach out as being an important part of this, and I I, I would not say that I've we banned anything in the organization. We've not even really discouraged. But it, we we take a you know, curious eye now when we tell kids you should go use this tool or that tool or go sign up for this this website or that website because it does introduce you know potentially uh, uh challenging issues into the the uh, uh process where if data is stolen if data is not mindfully kept if students over uh overshare inside of one of those tools and, and maybe um. You know maybe through uh, uh, na- naivete or or perhaps even uh not being informed you know accidentally publish something private publicly um that's something we're very conscious of now, whereas in 2010, it wouldn't have been even on my radar, especially as I left the classroom and it was much more loose and, and fancy free with that than, than I would be now as a classroom teacher. So, you know, we, we don't get a lot of questions related to this. We work really carefully that if we adopt a tool program-wide that it plugs into one of our existing privacy architectures like the Google Suite itself, which has, a, a, what in my mind, a wonderful set of privacy tools. But it's interesting you should mention this, Wes, because I was working with uh, the Office and admin today in, in our offices, and she was trying to install a Google uh, Sheets add-in that adds a lot of functionality to Google Sheets. And we um, ran into an issue where we couldn't get it turned on. And so I had to dig pretty deeply into the uh, uh, the, the uh, admin uh, c- console for Google. And I saw a couple of, of um, uh, I guess, privacy notices that I need to accept Two of them were grayed out because they said EU only and I believe they had this May date on them. So I think it was the same thing, right? So I ran into that today and kind of gave us a curious eye and I'm pretty sure I took a screenshot of it to go look it up later. So it's interesting you should mention this today because I just looked at that this afternoon and, uh, you know, I, 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 that's one of the great advantages in my mind of using something like Google or Office 365, I think, has something similar to this. Is that if I can use you know, their plugin architecture for that and their storage for that information, even if it's an external tool accessing that? then that's going to you'll probably meet even relatively strict privacy standards. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something on my mind. And, you know, I think parents are becoming more savvy about that. And I am I, I encouraged when schools contact us and ask about privacy policy, because it's something we're also interested in as well.
0: Yeah, I'll digress for a moment and tell a quick story. So I <clears throat> had a chance with lots of family to get together this last weekend for the memorial service. And uh, as I mentioned, Facebook was was great. Uh, had a conversation with my cousin who moved down from Kansas to the Dallas area. And he is in a smaller metro area district. And his wife was filling out a form and they were asking for all kinds of medical information. And I think Social Security number and all the stuff. And um and he looked at it and, and noticed that's. You know, that's not an encrypted page at all. And so he ended up calling and the, the secretary didn't have any idea, you know, you know, what, if it was encrypted and she was, you know, whatever. So he ended up going in and visiting with their tech director and, you know, he didn't know where the data was being stored, where it was saved. Um, and, and it ended up being a fruitful conversation because they were able to put some things in place as, in terms of secure socket layer SSL whatever um, encryption for the page. But, you know, I think that that's a great case study of why it is important for us to be asking questions um, where data is stored and whether or not organizations, including schools, are taking the appropriate precautions to try and prevent a, a breach or an interception of of data and, you know, Doing due diligence, right? Just like we protect confidential files at school and we're not going to just, you know, leave stuff laying out or, you know, put things uh, up in the hallway that that are confidential and protected. Uh, similarly, and, and that can be like student, um, you know, learning plans or or IEPs, individual education plans. I mean, that kind of stuff is confidential. So we need to make sure that the same kinds of precautions are being taken for our digital data.
1: Yep. Well, I you look- mentioned earlier, Wes, the notion of of turning on two-factor authentication for, for your teachers. We're going to be doing that eventually, too. We're starting off with our administrative staff and rolling it out pretty slowly. But, you know, those compelled data practices, I think, are also an important piece of this, right? Like, I would presume that, that you know, schools would uh, are, are at least trying to tell teachers basic security, right? Like, you'll leave your computer unlocked and use a relatively secure password and don't post it on a sticky note. In your mind, on your monitor, but you know, I think there's even more advanced ways now we can be doing that. And I'm really glad to see that schools are having these conversations and they seem to be productive and and also I think very positive too.
0: Yeah, I mean, at the, at the negative extreme, uh, I've heard of some districts that are, that at, at some point in the not too distant past were kind of trying to shut down the whole, you know, interactive web by saying, wait a minute, you know, students under. 14, you know, 13, you know, can't do any of this kind of stuff. And right. and you, you can't do anything interactive on the web, basically. Uh, and, and those were, I think, from reading the fine print of these different agreements. And it probably is the case that many of us uh, in technology leadership roles need to become a little bit more aware of these things. And I think, uh, you know, Peggy mentioned, how, how it appears the eu is is adding regulation while we 're maybe taking away regulation certainly with respect to net neutrality and, and that kind of thing um, i it, it remains to be seen all all what 's going to happen right because the tech companies generally i think want to pr- try and prevent a regulatory regime from curbing their innovation and also just what they can do with data and yep. um I think that you know, that threat of possible regulation is, is going to be very real, especially as we see Europe doing that. And hopefully it doesn't, you know, do terrible things like, like break the internet. Um, I'd like to segue to some Google articles and, and some stuff on Apple that we've got in the show notes. Um, yes. but I want to tie in an article, an article that's Google related, um, which I think we had in the show notes, um, uh, maybe a week ago, but it, it involves, uh, Sundar Pichai and the, uh, Davos, um, Conference the the, uh, the the World Economic Forum again, and so his quotation is that AI is more profound than electricity or fire. And if if any of us, I know Peggy's really good at at, at searching down notes. I would love to see, hopefully, his entire uh, video interview. There's about three minutes of it, or two and a half minutes of it on this CNN article. But, you know, he's he's saying pretty important things about how companies are stewards of information that users should, you know, are the owners of data and that trust is something that is is easily lost and companies need to take real, take very seriously. He's also talking about AI and the need to have general consensus throughout the international community that we need to demilitarize AI and make commitments, you know, not to weaponize AI. We talk about the weaponization of data, you know, in a, in a virtual sense, but we're talking about the actual, you know, virtualization, uh, or not the, 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 weaponization of, you know, real, real tanks, real robots, you know, real guns, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So I think you might've dropped that article in Jason. What, what did you think of what, which had to say here, uh, in terms of implications for schools?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that, um, I, I, no matter what, AI is going to be mind blowing, right? In ways that, that, you know, folks that like to talk about tech, Wes and I as an example, the folks in our chat room are good examples of this. We could sit around a table for days and not even begin to scratch the surface of about how these AI systems might really impact both, but the education broadly, but I think, you know, the, the, our culture and the way we interact with one another. And I am glad that tech leaders are starting to see that We need to put in basic rules in place, basic standards in place to make sure that we don't end up creating massively negative unintended consequences. But, you know, I think part of that is just understanding that all of these innovations, positive or seen as less than positive, you know, (laughs) are, um, (laughs) are, 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 you know, are are things we need to be ultimately careful about. And so that's a piece of it.
0: Your cat is doing some scratching, so I was trying to give you a yeah. Little,
1: little. Yeah. Oh. I don't know what she's doing. She's. She's not even in the room. So I, apparently, my my mic's picking up other stuff tonight. So, so uh, yeah. So that's. I, I think it's something we need to be very, very, very cautious of. So.
0: Well, uh, would you like to to go to some of those other Google articles, or you want to jump down to the
1: Apple stuff next? Let's do Google quickly and then we'll jump in Apple. The Apple's was pretty interesting to me. Um, first and foremost, uh, I just wanted to kind of uh, remind uh, something we talked about a couple of times in the past, but at the British Educational Technology Conference um, a few weeks ago, Google had joined up with Neverware, um, and we talked about Neverware here in the past, but here, uh, past episodes of the podcast, but Neverware is a uh, is a product called Cloud Ready that is a, an implementation of Chromium OS, which is the open source core of Chrome OS, and you can take one of 200 verified laptops, and and in my experience, probably hundreds of more, and turn them into even relatively dated hardware, into relatively fast Chrome OS-like devices. And uh, Google had actually, we reported this here on the podcast a few weeks ago, Google has invested in Neverware. They were a lead funder of a recent round of raising capital for their company and they were presenting together at the British Technology Conference, uh, having people bring in old laptops and turn them into Chromium OS or they call it cloud ready devices. And I think that's really interesting that Google is not just trying to, um, you know, pitch buying the Chrome OS experience that a company that's very cleverly utilized the the Chromium OS product, the, the open source product um is a is alive and well um and, and working together with these two pieces. And so very interesting news. Um uh, I, I really like Chromium OS. I utilize a desktop at work now about half, maybe sixty percent of the time, that is an old workstation that has a lot of RAM and CPU speed that I use as a Chromium OS desktop and I absolutely love it. It's fast and speedy and, and, and an efficient um, uh, tool set for me. But I thought that was interesting that Google's working together with the never ready folks. Um, so uh, interesting uh, bit of news there.
0: Um, and in addition in the, in the Chrome world, um, there's uh, some, some troubling statistics uh, coming out about, how many bad applications have been snagged? I think actually this is under the security tab, but it's still Google. Um, I think you dropped in the Verge article from January 30th. Google took down over 700,000 bad Android apps in 2017. And then from BGR, which I got a couple articles from, not exactly sure, it looks like a legit site uh, from today, January 31st. The sad state of Android, Google removed over 700,000 bad apps. Now, one of these articles points out Apple doesn't release these statistics, so we don't know how many applications Apple has removed and identified. They are uh, saying that machine learning and AI is, is playing a role here. Um, they're also banning developers that, that are, you know, repeatedly uh, trying to do bad things, whether that's, you know, putting, um, you know, very inappropriate violent or pornographic content or trying to have malware that's going to try and steal your data and steal your information. Um, I, I think this is just kind of another sign of the times, right? I mean, there are people that are going to use their creative entrepreneurial skills to, you know, have some kind of extortion, mafia protection schemes. I mean, do, do all kinds of, of illegal things. And so, uh, as a friend back in Lubbock, Texas in the early 2000s said, as the internet grows, it, it, it increasingly looks more and more like the real world. So we're not going to eliminate crime, I don't think, from the real world. And we're not going to eliminate these kinds of attempts to steal information or, you know, make make money with, with apps that violate terms of service. So on the good side, I think uh, Google is employing artificial intelligence and machine learning and being able to do a more efficient job of identifying these things. But I would say on the educational lens, this is Something to be aware of, just like you're talking about that extension that a coworker was trying to install that was going to involve more permissions and privacy implications. A lot of times, like we're, we're kind of conditioned for this with like a 48 page iTunes agreement, right? Just click through it. Go, go, go. And we need to be careful. Remember when uh, I said Sushi Go, uh, when Pokemon Go uh, came out, the developers of that app did not do a good job vetting what was needed for privacy. And so initially until this got patched, you were handing over virtually all the keys to your Google kingdom to not only read, but write data into your, your, uh, your Google world. And, and I don't know if I don't, I didn't read anything about some about them using that maliciously, Um, but you know, we, we can be in a real mad rush to install stuff and we need to be wary. We need to look at the reviews, you know, if something you know has, maybe it has five stars, but Oh, look, it only has two reviews. Well, don't consider that to be a fantastic app and the idea of trusted sources, right? Where do you go to find recommendations? And if you're just going out and Googling for something, you know, especially if you're going to give something authority over, let's say your whole Google login, it's important that you. You know, vet that at some level, whether that's being assured as you look at reviews and and the numbers of of reviews and star ratings or you bounce that off of of somebody else in your your PLN, your uh, your personal learning network. you know, because it's, it can just take a couple clicks, right? Ask, um, Mr. Podesta or, or Mr. Powell, you know, who both fell prey to the phishing hacks with their Gmail accounts working for the Democratic Party and, and then working, um, well, Powell wasn't. Powell was. But he was he was just he was hacked. I don't know I don't know exactly why he was targeted. Podesta was the chairman of the of the uh, Democratic National Committee when when he was hacked. But if these guys were very you know intelligent and I'm sure savvy educated folks can be tricked. I actually read an article this last week that was saying that right. You know kind of get over trying to stop everyone from being tricked with phishing. We need to help educate people, but let's not have a fantasy that I'm going to suddenly educate all the users, you know, in my school or my organization to the point where they can't be fished. because people right. are continually coming up with, with more and more savvy ways of tricking you. So yep. security is a layered thing. You need to have multiple, multiple layers here and part of the hygiene that, Manush Samarodi, the the note to self podcast author and, and others encourage us is to is to take an inventory. Right. And Google is good at doing that now, you know, asking you to check on security, see the different apps and the different websites that you've given permission for your account. And it's kind of like spring cleaning, right? If there's different tools and you're like, what the heck is that? You know, I never use that. Delete it, you know, delete the credentials. And and that's just part of uh, kind of spring cleaning for security that we need to be doing on a periodic
1: basis. Yep, absolutely so. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, and I've, I've kind of experienced this before, it's one of the reasons why I think that, that some people have, have stopped seeing kind of the app universe as a goldmine, because what happens with a lot of those those fake apps is that a novel app will be released, and immediately 25 apps that do something similar, or in some cases utilize the same code as the original app are released, but with heavy amounts of advertising or in-app purchasing that encourage you to spend way more than the original app Really, the credit should go is is uh, uh, is taking place, and so I think Google is is wise, and also I'm glad to see there be more proactive about that. I get frustrated sometimes, and I, I, this is also true for me on the iOS uh, App Store. But the bottom line is, it's, it feels more um, more like a free a free for all on the Google Play Store. But there's definitely cases where fake uh, uh, clone apps end up appearing, and that's. That's sad to me, right? Like, especially since the hard work that went into the innovation of that original app is diminished with that. So it's, it, it's, it is shocking that 700,000 apps in one year were pulled for those variety of reasons. But I do think that it's good on Google for, for, taking a more proactive approach to that. It's almost Apple-like because they, uh, Apple does spend a lot more time trying to prune back and, um, you know, keep the, the place or the app store as clean as possible.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, take us to some of this uh, Apple news. we got some interesting rumors and uh, also some interesting, you know, sales things going on. So where do you where do you want to go there first?
1: Sure. The first article that I've seen this referred a couple of times in the last 72 hours. But uh, there are apparently, uh, according to rumors, uh, three different uh, uh, new Macs coming in 2018 that apparently um will include non-Intel processors. And so there is a, a number of, of of potential scenarios where this might be the case. But in essence, it looks like there are reference designs that have uh, been leaked and are also uh, being floated around various engineering communities um, looking for manufacturers for these devices that suggest that Apple will release new computers, and I've seen references to both desktops and laptops uh, in the the coming year that are utilizing ARM processors designed by Apple. And so that that's interesting to me for a number of reasons. The first one is that you know we reported earlier on this podcast, it was about a month month and a half ago, that Microsoft is uh, working on something similar right now. They're releasing some ARM-based Windows computers that can run full Windows 10 on it, and they're essentially emulating part of the Intel code set that is integrated into processors, but the ARM chips are showing very lengthy battery lives, and also multiple ARM chips stringed together uh, with multiple cores or multiple processors have proven to be as fast as desktop and laptop quality chips. And so uh, I know that I have announced in the past I've been a little bored with what uh, Apple's releasing, although, Last week I had the opportunity to put my hands for the first time physically on one of the 15 inch uh, MacBook retinas, the very new thin ones that uh, are the replacement for the, the previous generation of those. Uh, I, don't, I don't really care for the little touch bar thing on top. I That doesn't really do much for me, but um, in every other way, it was just a really beautiful experience. It's a nice hand feel, its weight is great. It feels like beautiful, sturdy hardware my understanding of the keyboards are challenging because the new scissor keys that they're using are very prone to breakage over time. But other than that, wonderful hardware. So if uh, Apple's going to be really messing with the, um, the model and maybe adding in chips that have long battery life, and I've always felt that Macs have, have been generally superior to Windows machines when it comes to battery life on mobile, but um, it's, it's exciting. I think we could see some wonderful new Mac products um, in 2018. Does any of that attempt you, uh, Dr. Fry? Frank?
0: Well, I am you know curious in fact, you know it's it's probably better not to spend tons of time talking about Mac rumors, but the the rumors about th- these new processors are are interesting, especially in light of what we've seen with meltdown and Spectre, you know and the importance of security and seeing what what apple's going to going to come up with. Um, I don't think I'm personally in the market for a new device. And I will say we're really happy with the airs. I think generally at school, you know, that that's, that's been a good purchase. You know, I mean, even tonight with, with my wife swapping around, I mean, I was, when I was going to use my machine, this is, I was having to grab this silly dongle to, you know, be able to connect my, my microphone. And anyway, it's ditching all other, um, USB peripherals in, in favor of USB C is, is a bridge too far for most education users today. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, but I don't, I don't know that we're looking at, a, you know, a different purchasing. I mean, we'll evaluate it, right? We refresh some computers uh, each year were on a 5-year cycle. Um but there is a TechCrunch article also in this list of links from January 31st, Apple could let you run iPad apps on your Mac. We've talked about this on the show how, you know, both Google and Apple are showing this this very robust ecosystem of apps and being able to to push updates and have those things happen either automatically in the background or or really easily with with a click. And so I I think this will be pretty interesting and, you know, it's still, uh, on, on the rumor level, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to be pleased with how more and more function comes to the browser. And I think I might've mentioned the the project with eBooks and things like that, that we've been doing with book creator. And we've, we had a, a class of 15 kids and you know, about four of them went with the iPad and the rest of them went with their laptop to create their books. And so, Anyway, it's going to be interesting to see what Apple comes comes up with, but I really feel like Apple is lagging behind in the education market. We don't have anything about the, the HomePod, but not only is Apple late to market with the HomePod, it's just not nearly as capable. It's ridiculously expensive and other consumers like myself are are already investing in a different ecosystem right so if yeah. you've gone out and invested in some of the miss a queen queen miss a or whatever you want to say uh divine you know miss amazon a. devices the divine miss a thank you or in our case uh google assistant you know i'm i don't see us turning back from that certainly not when apple's i mean right. offering I just don't feel like they're off. They're gonna, they're winning and, and doing what they need to do to be, even be competitive in the AI arena. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's not, not real, uh, um, heartening. And I guess to continue with the depressing Apple news, um, this is from BGR, your favorite tech source and mine. Uh, January 29th, 2018, Apple reportedly slashes iPhone X orders in half due to slow sales. I actually heard about this on one of the news podcasts I was listening to on my Google home today, uh, when we came, came home from school. But, uh, basically Apple was projecting, uh, 40 million iPhone 10s and they've cut that to 20. That's huge. That's a huge cut. And so wow. Apple has an earnings call that is coming up tomorrow, uh, that Steve Cook will be on. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's probably not going to, going to be. A pretty thing. So it's it's interesting to see Facebook making some changes, you know, on their newsfeed side, and I think their stock may have slipped like seven percent or something like that. And um, you know, there's there's rumors about uh, you know, that actually this is with L C D and O L E D. The I've got friends, of course, who are are using the the iPhone 10 and have it and, and you know, say it's great. But um, you know, I look at that thousand dollar device and I look at my hundred and sixty-four dollar Android phone and think you know, I'm, I'm pretty much doing everything I need to and, and look, at, look at how much, you know, money I save. So I, I just love to see Apple regain their path, but I think that their, uh, their products are a bit fractured and the whole um, strategy of having products that are, are higher quality, uh, but you have to pay that premium price for them I don't know if that's going to work in the long term given Moore's law and the ways that processing power and chip capability and and software and the maturing of the web is happening as well as as the way that they've they've not they don't have that opportunity, I think, to have as much data to feed the machine, to get their machine learning and their AI algorithms to, to be as good as, as they need to be. Um, maybe that's also a factor of, of hiring. But they're saying based on this earnings call tomorrow, you know, it could push Apple over a trillion dollars as value of a company or it could move them down. So I don't think that's going to have dramatic impacts for us at school. And I think we're sticking with the, the Mac as our primary you know platform for teachers. But at some point, as these trend lines continue, you know, it's, we're, it's, uh, it's going to be important to see what Google is continuing to do with their, uh, their Chromebooks and especially the ways that they bring tablet and touch technology to yeah. bear and, and how that gets, gets better. Because yep. as that gets better, it's going to be harder, especially for student devices, but at some point with teacher devices to ignore that and not look at that as a viable option.
1: Right. Well, and then the one article we didn't get to on, on, on the, the Chrome stuff was that there is a, an existing, uh, basically tablet Chrome OS device. And I believe it is Acer that, it, that is correct. Acer, um, that, that is putting that particular device out, but it's essentially a tablet running Chrome OS. And I gotta say, I, that seems pretty compelling to me. And in the same way that I feel like the, uh, the Chromebooks running apps are, are, are good devices or good ideas for devices. Um, and I've had a good experience personally with them to take that keyboard off and to just make it an app-based uh, architecture, I think is actually a pr- pretty compelling idea. So we'll see. have to see where that goes as well.
0: Thanks to Peggy George for pointing out my slip of the tongue. No, Steve Cook will not be leading the earnings call for Apple. It will be Tim Cook, the former CFO and now CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs being the deceased CEO. So, yes, I am Morphing together the identities of those
1: those two individuals. Perhaps Mr. Cook will wear a black turtleneck, so maybe that he can kind of split the difference and call it good.
0: That's right. Well, I think he just they need to, need to to get some some clarification in in product lines, and I'm I'm not exactly sure if I was uh yeah I'm not going to be promoted to uh, head head uh, head consultant there for Apple. So I'm not I'm not sure exactly what they need to do, but uh, certainly. It's, you know, I'm glad we've got competition. I think Apple, Apple has, has a cause and has caused lots of boats to rise in terms of, of the game and expectations of, of what we think a mobile device should be able to do, ease of use. I think the, the Apple platform is still, you know, especially the iOS experience in, in many ways, um, you know, is superior to what we have on Android. I can say that with a little more authority now, having been an Android user for a few months. But um, there's a lot of affordances to Android and that open platform, and especially on the on the cost side. So, Absolutely. shall we geek of the week? It it is top of the hour.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'll start. Uh, Mine's actually a a repeat from earlier, but they just released a new interface and some additional functionality. But um, I love to travel. And um, I've talked about my international travels quite a bit here on the podcast. Uh, We're on a bit of a hiatus right now because we have an exchange student, um, a family friend from Sweden spending the year for us with us. And so our last trip was actually to visit him and his family in Sweden last summer. And we're looking at something for maybe later this summer or perhaps at Christmas time this year, uh, to do our next international trip, but I'm I'm an Alaska air guy. That's what I fly domestically whenever I can. I'm a, um, a, a first-level uh, elite flyer with them, and so I get some advantages based on that, and I have the credit card and stuff, and so that's my general preference for flying. When I'm traveling internationally, Alaska does have partners internationally, but they don't, don't always have the best prices, and um, I have a friend that, that just 10 years ago became a, a pretty big international traveler and takes a, a several trips a year now, um, he's a teacher uh, that, that I went to college with, and um, he swears by this, but Google Flights is a wonderful website for finding the cheapest deals across all airlines, and they have some interesting searches that none of the other commercial sites do that allow you to find really great deals, and I talked to someone very recently that I worked with who um, actually found out of Missoula a a $300 each-way ticket by buying two separate tickets, two one-way tickets, and um, was able to take a, a trip later this spring to Europe for just $600 total. And I'm sure that some of those flights are going to be, you know, uh, what I would call like chicken bus class uh, at the back of the airplane where you're, you're lucky to get a bag of peanuts, let alone an opportunity to visit the restroom in, in the, the 12-hour <laughs> overseas flight. But um, still, uh, if you are a, a traveler and like to find and sniff out great deals on airlines, Google Flights, flights.google.com. It's one of my preferred tools for for sniffing out really great deals
0: awesome and I've got two quick ones one just for fun uh, this may be old news for all of you but my wife and I have finally jumped into the Netflix series Stranger Things how fun if you have any kind of connection to the 80s or 80s music and you are at all liking X-File-ish type shows uh, we're almost uh, I guess halfway through season 2 uh, the only bummer is I think season 3 waits till 2019 so we're going to be you know a little bit uh, uh, you know sad to to have to wait that long, but our eighth grade daughter actually had seen this whole thing. And I think she binge watched, you know, in a pretty short amount of time, it is interesting, right. How different kinds of content and shows and things like that, uh, whether it's Netflix or there's, you know, stuff on HBO and other things and what are, what our kids are watching. And so it's definitely good to, you know, be able to vet and check that kind of stuff out. Um, Definitely everything here appropriate and, and fine. Uh Fun just a fun show. But Peggy George, shout out to Peggy. This is Peggy's Geek of the Week even though she's not a formal guest on the show. Um, this is a free Google um, extension called, well, or is it an add-on? I guess it's an extension. No, it's an add-on uh, called certify And it is uh, described, uh, lets you leverage the power of Google Forms to create online certifications and email custom certificates to exam takers. Uh, oh. So, you know, not only exam takers but you know you can also just create certificates for students i mean this has been a reason we've got some some folks really clinging on to old windows systems that have microsoft publisher and you know older uh you know versions of templates and things like that to be able to print um so that looks pretty cool i know that i have have used a a google add-on uh to generate certificates uh for ed camps and things like that and so for for like professional development so this looks pretty cool. I don't know that this will be, yeah, I think it is. It is. Cause you can set up a quiz and then you can have this, you know, automatically emailed to them. So I'm trying to think, do you remember the name of that, um, of that Google add on Jason, that lets you do all kinds of fancy mail merges?
1: Let's see if yeah, I can get it here real quick. We, we actually use it at, at the digital Academy quite a bit uh, internally, but, um, Tool I can't remember .com.
0: Auto autocrat
1: autocrat. There you go. Thanks thanks to Google. So anyway,
0: looks like a, a more customized version. So, well, Jason, where can folks find you, and what is upcoming in your your ed tech world? Is there an NCCe conference coming up around the corner? There,
1: there is. Uh, February 14th to 16th uh, in fabulous Seattle, Washington, featuring Dan Rather as our feature speaker this year as the Northwest Council for Computer Education Conference. Uh, it's a great time, draws a nationwide audience. Some of the greatest speakers um, in the Pacific Northwest and beyond will be there. This year, I'm presenting on um, a successful recipe for for offering uh, distance learning courses. I'll be speaking a little bit on intelligent personal assistance in the classroom and unveiling early results uh, for my dissertation research. Um, I will be also speaking on um, 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 our, my favorite 30 tools of the year, something that Mike and I do as kind of a, um, a a fun fast paced session. And then I'm also going to be spending a lot of time going in and out of some of the forums there um, and participating both as a moderator and, and also a discussant. So I'm really excited about uh, those prospects this year. And um, uh, Mike Agustinelli and I, my partner in crime at the Digital Academy, love that conference every year. It's a really great opportunity to connect. So NCC is in my, my very near future. Um, I'm on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, and I blog at blog.ncc.org. And um, I am also on Facebook, but you know what? I don't do any tech stuff there. So I guess I'm meeting the all-new Facebook as personal Um, uh, movement as part of that process. What about you, sir?
0: Well, I am on the Twitters at W Fryer. I actually put up a blog post this weekend. I'd been over a month, not posting, which may have been my longest hiatus since around 2003. When I started blogging with, uh, some some tool that was that was not WordPress. WordPress started in 2005. But uh, I shared a several different updates there, and one of those is that when the NCCE conference is is going on with Dan Rather, I will be up in Ohio, having an opportunity to uh, be an opening keynote speaker there for the Ohio Educational Technology Conference. I was a keynote for them back in 2009, and it's actually really really cool. They uh, had a professional photographer shooting these. These sort of glamour shots that I have still used on my, uh, on my blog. And someone will probably accuse me of false advertising because I think I have widened perhaps considerably since those photographs were taken, but it will be, uh, exciting to be up there. Their whole theme is digital citizenship. And so I've got to, I've been, you know, working on my ideas for that, but that's gonna, Definitely be continuing to build on many of the themes that we have here talking about digital citizenship, things to talk about with students, strategies, uh, and the website I think I may have mentioned last week, the digsit.us. And at school, uh, our communications team uh, is actually partnering with me and, and we're uh, engaged with a graphic designer who's going to be doing some logo stuff and and uh, making that, that site uh, look like it is part of, because it is part of what we're doing at school um, at at Cassidy School, but as, a, as an open resource, not only for our teachers, but for others as well. And I'm looking forward to how uh, that will hopefully grow and we can get more conversations going in classrooms and advisories and, and other times we've got a chance to to chat with students about contemporary issues. There's a lot of important stuff to talk about. So we want to thank you for tuning in. This has been Episode 84 of the EdTech Situation Room for January 31st, 2018. Jason and I are normally here at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Uh, Mountain or – 3 a.m. UTC. Is that right? 3 yeah, A.M. got UTC, it, baby. That's right. So, and if you tune in at 3 a.m. UTC, we want to hear from you. In fact, we'd love to hear from you. You can tweet uh, Jason or I, or you can tweet to us at EdTechSR. Use the EdTechSR hashtag if you would like to suggest an article or just get that on our radar because we tend to look at that and Uh, utilize links from that hashtag when they come in our show notes as well. So thanks everybody. Have a great week and until next time stay safe and stay savvy. Good night.